Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Well, hey, Pat, how's it going? How are you feeling about recording a podcast? I am super excited to be recording in a room where I can see you, even though you're eight feet away. That's right. Very excited about uh, the beers we're going to be drinking tonight. Saison is absolutely one of my all-time favorite styles. And it's always great to have Hans on the show. That's I'm right. Here. Hans. Happy, happy to be here, Welcome too. Welcome back. It's good to have you. And yeah, it's great to have some Saisons. Let's bring all the listeners in on like, what do we mean when we say Saison and a little bit about what I'm going to call the modern history of Saisons. I think that's perfect. And I think it's worth noting as well that we're sure in the hell not going into this dry pat. So right now we're drinking a Rock Mill Petite Saison made right here. Very close to us as Hans cracks his down towards Lancaster, halfway between Lithopolis, Lancaster, I think it's a Lancaster address, right? Yeah, it's between the two. It's a lovely country setting. It's a fantastic place. I was just there this last weekend. You know, in the COVID times, of course, you got a distance from people. But what better way to do that than on a horse farm, right? Because the Rock Mill is located on an old horse farm. And uh, they've been making Belgian-style beers for, you know, well over a decade, which would make them pretty venerable in terms of the Ohio craft beer scene. We'll come back to this particular beer in a minute, but we were just about to say, what is a Saison? I don't know, Hans, you thought a lot about Saisons. You brewed them for many years. You've read the Farmhouse Ales book. What would you say makes something a Saison? How is it different from other beers? What's the history of this beer? Historically, if you can imagine living in Belgium, being a farmer, and it being winter, right? You've got no crops in the field, What are you going to spend your time doing? Well, in part, you're going to prepare for the season that's coming up. And one way a farmer might have done that is brew a beer in the winter. He's got time on his hands. He's got grain uh, from the previous season. And he's going to brew this beer in the winter. And it's different, this beer, compared to other beers in the area that are currently being brewed. Because most beers at that time, they're brewed and they're drank fresh right? They're not stored in any way. Um, They're not transported over any long distance. They're brewed for local people and immediately they're drunk. This beer is different though. He's going to brew it and he's going to put it in a cellar. He's going to put it in a cave. Strangely, what's he going to do by German standards? He's going to lager it. He's going to store it. In French standards, degard, reserve. It's stored. So at least linguistically, if not beer style wise, this beer is a stored beer in this historical context. It's a lagered beer. He's brewing it in the winter, but to be drunk in the summer. So the summer comes. He's got his crop in. It's time to harvest the crop. And this farmer needs to bring in seasonal help, seasonal help to harvest grain and other crops. And this seasonal help, it's to his benefit to have a good environment for them to work in and to keep them hydrated and to keep them happy in the fields. And this beer that he brewed in the winter, low ABV by modern standards, for instance, lagered to keep from winter to harvest time, these seasonal workers, seasonaires, saison, 
this is going to be served to them to help fortify them and refresh them and quench their thirst in hot summer months when they're doing the work to bring in the crops. And so this is the context in which this, by definition, farmhouse ale in a rustic setting, in a rural agricultural setting, was brewed for a very specific purpose, right? If it has a, a purpose in that way, it's, it's to be refreshing. And so that might be an overarching thing, whether it's a historical saison uh, or a modern iteration. Refreshing might be the key. How much the modern iterations uh, mimic that is a different conversation. Yeah, well, that's actually the conversation we're probably going to have tonight. Uh, Absolutely. And this rock mill petite saison is very refreshing. How would you describe the flavor characteristics of this beer, Mark? You know, it's got that kind of funky Belgian ale, earthy, kind of a sour fruit. It's got a nice fine carbonation. It's lighter on CO2 than I think a lot of saisons are. But full disclosure, this is coming out of a can, so... They can only take so many volumes of CO2. I I get some spiciness, maybe in the coriander, lemongrass, lemon zest type of vein. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little citrus peel in there as well. I I think you want it to be dry. It's not super dry, but it's dry. Super dry is sometimes not the best to slake your thirst in the summer, right? It's been a long time since I've had this beer, and I'm really liking it. Yeah, it's just right on. I think this is my favorite of their beers, not that they're known to produce any slouches out there, but maybe because you can have more of these, it's a little more sessionable than some of their other offerings. It just screams sitting outside, which we're doing right now. Oh, man, what a billowy white head this is. Let me read this label. Vielle Provision Saison du Pont Cuvée Dry Hopping Finished with Styrian Wolf Hop Editions. Unfiltered Belgian farmhouse ale. Bottle conditioned. We need to talk about bottle conditioning, by the way. 750 milliliters. 6.5% alcohol by volume. This is an excellent beer. Tell me about Styrian Wolf Hops. I bet a lot of people don't know about that. Well, Styria Wolf is a variety that comes from the Slovenia Institute for Hop Research, and that is actually in Zalek, Slovenia. Other hops, and one of which has been used down at Langrand, Styrian Fox. There's also Styrian Dragon and Golding. So Styrian Wolf has some dominant flavors on the fruity end, which are kind of a little bit more new world, although they are a variant of old world hops. I think hops can work really well, but the key thing is that where the yeast stops and the hops begin has to be imperceptible. I did look a little bit at the Styrian wolf hops, like, you know, those those radar plots or those spiderweb plots, and the one thing I'll say is, like, you know, there's herbal, dank, fruity, blah, 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 citrus, and this one goes to 11 on fruity. It checks all the boxes, huh? Yeah. I think imperceptible nice. is a really good term to use when it comes to ingredients and adjuncts and spices and things that might go into this style of beer. I think it's very much in the spirit of this kind of beer to add these things in a way where you are not 
identifying them individually and they're not beating you over the head. Oh, there's orange peel in this beer. Oh, there's coriander in this beer. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's all about the harmony. Man, though, I'm sticking my nose in the glass right now, and it is just so lovely. What do you guys get from this beer? Well, now that it's kind of died down, because the head was so intense at the beginning, you could barely get your nose in it without pulling out some meringue. I get like a white bread, crackery, you know, just a touch of honey, maybe a floral, kind of a floral hop note there. And there's obviously spices and, you know, it's kind of herbaceous. I don't want to say sour, but there's a slight tartness on the nose that I don't think translates to the palate that is interesting to me. I think in the finish, as you swallow, I get like kind of a slight return of lemon peel and kind of that peppery uh, note that comes back up. Dang, yeah, all of that. I totally agree. I don't know. There's just such a distinctive smell to a Saison when it's done right. And I don't even have words for it other than say it smells like a Saison. Yeah, it's nice. It's a beautiful beer. and, And I really think this dry hopping version is amazing. In some of the literature, they point out that a Saison might be less phenolic than other beers of the region and more floral and fruity. And I think that's true in some of the modern iterations. Well, I do think that definitely the phenolic character in a Saison is different than, say, a Hefeweizen or maybe even a wit beer. But in a Hefeweizen, of course, I think you get more of the clove. And I think in a Saison, you get more of the yeah, I called it white pepper. Pepper, think, that's it. I think that's the right. So, it's in the so pepper vein. when we when we talk to phenols, like we've got the clove and we've got the pepper, and there are certain saisons, and we might have even uh, reviewed them previously in the podcast that that there is that peppery note, but not so much uh, in, in the cloves. I, I did read once a quote is probably in Michael Jackson's book that anyone who has the Dupont yeast is touched by God. You know, because it is really a special yeast. And we should say, these beers are fermented at crazy high temperatures. At DuPont, you know, I've read they will let the temperature in the fermenter rise to 100 Fahrenheit. That's the way you do a Saison, Pat. Yeah, you've got to let, you got to let the temperature go up, you know. But on the other hand, I have had Saisons that where the phenolics were way too assertive and, and unpleasant. And so... I would actually think from the temperature, maybe more in the ester vein, though, really, of the yeast characteristics coming in. I've pushed that threshold as a homebrew just to see, like, what the effects... Okay, here's 80, here's 85. And at 85, things start, you know, the the wheels start rattling off a, a little bit. But the yeast is, like, it's a beast, and it can really operate and do interesting things at those higher temperatures. The thing you have to calibrate that to or meter it with with DuPont specifically though is you have to remember they have a, a whole protocol for aging after they ferment at these high temperatures before it ends up in the consumer's hand. And that's a valuable point. And that time in aging really um, mitigates and melds like things going on in this beer in a way that if you drank it immediately, you, you might find some harsh things going on. Yeah, and I think also this is a bottle-conditioned beer, and this can continue to cellar for, I'm not going to say many years, but... I think it it can only get more interesting. It can meld together 
in a more cohesive way. It's really hard to tell what that aging will do, but with that live yeast in the bottle, really helps. Who here has had Cezanne Dupont on tap? I have. Mm-hmm. It's totally different. In my opinion, like, completely different thing. And I think the bottle conditioning is part and parcel of what makes it a good beer. And I think it put in a keg is is a lesser iteration. Well, that gets to the whole, what the Belgians would call re-fermentation in the bottle, which we call bottle conditioning. And, you know, that does more than just carbonate the beer. It's hard to think about saisons without thinking about bottle conditioning. I mean, we are drinking a DuPont beer now. I think almost all beer drinkers in the world would recognize DuPont as the archetypal saison of which everything is based. But how did that come to pass? And my understanding is there might have been a specific incident that encouraged this beer to make its way into the new world. And it's sort of a long story, so I'll try and tell the condensed version here. You know, DuPont, I've been there. It is literally in this tiny village in Belgium that would be easily mistaken for a farm. Rustic. It's very rustic there. I'm very jealous. Torps. It's called Torps, yeah. You know, I didn't see any cows crossing the road, but it would not have surprised me. But what I'll say is that DuPont makes a lot of beers besides the Saison. They make dozens of beers. It's almost like an American craft brewery, all the different kind of things you can get there. You can get lagers, you can get stouts, you can get many, many things. If you go back to the 1970s, the Saison was not a big seller. From what I've read, it was counted for maybe 2% of their sales. And that meant locally, not a big seller locally. Yeah, not a big seller locally and, of course, not a seller at all outside of Belgium, probably in those days. The famed beer writer Michael Jackson visited there, and he really enjoyed the Saison. And, you know, I think you could probably see the historical lineage in that beer. And he advocated for it. And then the thing that happened from his advocating for this beer is that there was a distributor from the U.S. I think his name was Dom Feinberg or something like that. He came to Belgium and he wanted to then find some good beers to import to the U.S. My recollection of the story was their response was, are you sure this is the one you mean? (laughs) Well, and that comes when Feinberg went to DuPont. He said, well, I'd like to import to the U.S. your Saison. And they're like, well, I think you must be mistaken. You don't want that beer. You want a Moinet. And Moinet is a beautiful beer. It's, a, it's kind of in the vein of a Duval. It's a Belgian Golden Strong. But he had read Jackson, and, you know, I get, he, obviously he tasted them all, and he had a, an opinion. Probably he thought, you know, this rustic farmhouse nature would be great for marketing, I'm thinking. And it is a beautiful beer. And so he persisted, and they said, okay, well, we'll make it for you if you want to buy it. That got sent over to the U.S., and, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I mean, I will say that right now, the Saison accounts, from what I've read, for about 40% of their sales. Almost all of that is exported. It is the modern pinnacle of the style. I would agree. Well, some people would say it's a modern pinnacle of beer. I could put it in my top three beers of all time. I think we all agree that Saison DuPont is a classic and highly imitated. However, I think we might also agree that it's not the be-all and the end-all for the style. 
Hans, maybe you could elaborate on some of the elements of the Cezanne tradition that are not present in DuPont. Maybe you're going to have some other adjuncts because of the context, right? So maybe these farmers had grain that they grew themselves that was cheaper for them to use their own grain rather than buying malted grain from somewhere else. There's a likelihood to have some unmalted uh, locally produced grain added in here. And that might contribute maybe to the clarity of the beer, that might contribute to the head of the beer, that might contribute to the flavor of the beer. Like that unmalted grain might be a thing. Also, because they're storing it in very rustic conditions, like literally rustic by definition, right? These barrels and the context where they're storing it, there might be lactobacillus. So Cezans might have had a, a sour character to them. Maybe also uh, they might have had bread based on the barrels they were stored in. So these things were not absent from the style and they might have been included or might not. The other thing about this style is it might be the least well-defined style of people trying to define styles. It is really more a a way of thinking about a beer than it is a style. Like any one of these characteristics, you might change, and it might still be to style to the beer. And I don't think you can say that about other styles. Yeah. Also, I think there are people in the region right now brewing beers that absolutely fit what we are all talking about this style who wouldn't at all agree that they were brewing the style of beer that is Saison. Well, I think that liberation of recipe is a lot of what makes this style so fun. It's idiosyncratic to the time and place it is brewed and the spirit of the brewer uh, that's brewing it. One of the things you can say is, unlike many beer styles, this style was largely not an industrial beer style until relatively recently, until maybe the 1970s. And you could even say DuPont is still kind of a small brewery in a lot of ways. But if you were to look at Porter, Stout, Pilsner, or American IPA, those styles did not come from a farmhouse. Right? Those were not things that farmers were making. Those were industrial styles from the very beginning. And so this one does have its origins in farmhouse brewing. And of course, by definition, farmhouse brewing, the styles are not going to be very well-defined. It is the most widespread example of a beer that really largely developed in an agricultural setting. And I don't think we have, I'm not saying there are not other styles like that, but in general, most styles did not evolve in that way. I like that you used porters in your example there only because it reminds me. If we're asserting here um, that the name of this style comes from to whom it was intended to be served, seasonal workers, saison, right? Porters, at least the story goes, porters is a style that has the same pedigree. Its name comes from to whom it was intended to be served. So that's a very unusual thing, so I think it was good that you included that in your list there. come back to Ohio now uh, with the little Branch and Bone Silence Mill. Now, where's Branch and Bone? They're in Dayton. It's a small brewery 
they specialize in mixed fermentation beers, I would say. A lot of sours, but also this Brett beer. It's very much almost exclusively what they do there. And look how white that head is in just straw, pale straw color beer. Lovely. Now, I picked this beer for a couple of reasons. First of all, this beer is, I would say, a Saison with Britannomyces, with Brett. Uh, Hans, you alluded to earlier that a lot of times in the farmhouse breweries, it would not have been surprising that you get some Brett in the beer, some wild yeast. And and the other thing about this beer is this is a freaking excellent beer. This beer was bronze medalist at the Fobab. That's right, at the Festival of Wood and Barrel-Aged Beers, and that was uh, just this past year, 2019. That's right. That is no small thing. Yeah, and uh, I think they were up against 19 other beers in the wild ale category. This has been French Oak Fooder Aged. Let me uh, describe and review this lovely label here, too. So it's totally black and white label, Branch and Bone Artisan Ales. Silence Mill is the name, but footer aged mixed fermentation saison with local honey. And then the artwork on the label <laughs> is it's a guillotine, actually, um, but with a honeybee perched on top and a little hexagon uh, like a honeycomb for where somebody might put their head in the guillotine. I really uh, appreciate the artwork on this label. And that's a Dayton honeybee. Well, yeah. well, clearly, it's a Dayton honey, but yeah, you can just tell by looking at it. Come on. Yeah. It's got a Flyers sweatshirt on. I thought it would be good to bring some honey beers into the conversation because not all our listeners know, but uh, Hans is a pretty avid amateur uh, beekeeper. Isn't that not right, Hans? Yeah. So while I might be a home brewer and like to brew beer occasionally at home, kind of the same level of investment in having honeybees. Sugar... And Belgian beers have a relationship different from beer, really, from anywhere else in the world. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) I like the agreement on that. Can you guys just describe how Belgian brewers might incorporate uh, sugar, whether it's honey or not, in a beer in a way that really isn't found elsewhere? Well, they would add it to their fermentables. I don't know if it's so much how they would add it, because probably, most likely, in the boil or towards the end or even in the finishing of the product. Most noteworthy is how it dries those beers out. And that's not necessarily in the recipe that's in the finished product that the drying out. I mean, a lot of these beers that are really dry is because a lot of the fermentables are totally fermentable rather than maybe the fermentables that you would achieve from a mash of the grain. Now, while I know it might be a little bit pedantic for some of the listeners who who know brewing, but it does seem almost counterintuitive that by adding honey, you would make the beer less sweet and more dry. How does that work? So I love this dichotomy, right? I'm going to add sugar to my beer so that the end product is less sweet. It's not sweet. That's a good point. Yeah, right? but that's what it does. It ferments out. And, and that's the thing because the sugars are bringing the fuel for the yeast without at the same time bringing the same flavors along that malt, malted grain, malted barley specifically, is bringing. It allows you to achieve an alcohol level in the beer while at the same time drying out the middle, the flavor portion of the beer, and letting it be light and not cloying and not thick in a way the same way 
that adding the same amount of fuel in barley malt would do. If I can jump in as a chemist, I mean, please do jump in. Sugars are these, you know, these carbohydrate uh, six carbon rings. Ooh, that needs to be a beer name, just for the record. Six carbon rings. <laughs> six carbon rings and a partridge in a pear tree. So I'm going to brew that beer, just for the record. <laughs> the thing is, so we have very simple sugars, which are small molecules like glucose, sucrose. These are names everyone knows. Larger molecules, you can go to maltose, maltotriose. Once you get above that stage, people just kind of lump them all together and call them dextrins. When you mash a beer and get extract the sugars from the malt, you get all of those things. And, you know, most of them are the simpler sugars that the yeast can eat. So the yeast can only eat up to a certain point. Beyond up to a certain point of? Complexity of the sugar molecule. So all yeast can eat sucrose and glucose uh, and maltose. But then you get, you know, to maltotriose, which is a, a more complicated molecule, and the yeast can't digest them. You know, depends. Some yeast can, some can't. And then you get longer and longer, more complex sugars, and then no yeast can eat it. When you want to make a strong beer, you want to make a, a, an 8%, 9% beer, and you use enough malt to get that much sugar into the beer, there's going to be a fair amount of residual sugar left behind that the yeast can't eat. But if, let's say, you make a 7% beer, and now you just add enough honey, or for that matter, just plain old table sugar to the beer... That is not going to be sugar in the end. It's going to be fermented out by the yeast, and so you can get that higher ABV, but yet avoid that kind of sweetness that normally comes with really strong beers. So that is one of the secrets, if you will. Well, it's hardly a secret, but it's one of the, the tricks of the Belgian brewing trade. Well, it's surely not a secret now. And the yeast you're talking about in that scenario, though, has a certain genus and species that is different and separate from another bug that might be in this beer that might be able to consume additional things. Well, that's an excellent point. So what you're referring to is that the normal yeast used in brewing is a Saccharomyces yeast, and this beer has a Brettanomyces. And the Brettanomyces is, I don't know, how would you describe it? A little bit like a tortoise. It's very slow. It doesn't ferment very quickly, but it can eat... All kinds of sugars. and It, it can, does finish the race, doesn't it? It does That's finish the race. Well said. Absolutely. And of course, as we know and has been the subject of one of our podcasts, Orval, the Orval yeah. podcast is that the beer Orval is basically a Brett Saison. Right on. One of the most fabulous, outstanding beers Might in the world. Might be the best beer in the world. Yeah, well, hey, for more on that. Back podcast this because we're not going to talk about Orval today, but very applicable. And this definitely has that same Brettomyces nose, that sweet tart start to it when you put your yeah. nose in the glass and you go, wow, what's that candy-like tartness that I'm getting there? And that's the Brettomyces. What maybe we haven't said is this beer is not just offering some Brettomyces profile, but there's a tartness to this beer as well. We might discuss where that comes from. There is a little tartness to it, I agree. I don't think anyone would call this a sour beer. Well, some people might, but yeah, I would not. it's touch sour, but no, it's more tart than sour. And, and I think it should be said that 
Britannomyces doesn't normally produce acid, but if there's, you know, oxygen around, uh, you can get some tartness, some sourness from Britannomyces. I do not know what bugs they used to make this beer. Under normal circumstances, if there is some acidity to a beer, it is contributed by? Well, be by bacteria in the beer. So generally, you might have some lactobacillus or pediococcus or maybe even acetobacter. This was aged in a fooder, and it's very possible that there could have been, you know, some bacteria in that fooder, right? I like the idea that that might have in this beer been contributed not by a clinical addition of a purchased bug, but rather a bug that's living in the equipment they decided to age the beer in. So if that is the case in this beer, I think that that adds some complexity that um, adds value to me. Absolutely. Well, it's a lovely barrel-aged beer. An unnotable location producing an exceptional beer. Yeah. What you see at the front door does not describe what goes in the glass. And I think you both have had experiences that speak to that truth. Oh, I've seen that time and time again. And it should also be said, this is not on a farm in any way. So let's talk about that a little bit because there's a couple terms that get thrown around um, with beer styles that we may or may not agree apply. And so the word rustic and the word farmhouse often get applied in the branding of certain beers. So rustic, I mean, by definition, it means rural and rough-hoon, right? And unrefined. Old-fashioned, maybe? Sometimes, right? Old-fashioned. And farmhouse doesn't need a better definition. It literally means farmhouse. So when... um, very urban and modern and shiny uh, breweries add the words farmhouse and rustic to their beers. The question is, does that quality really apply to the beer in the class? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it necessarily has to be applicable. I think a very refined beer can be made in a very plain and simple fashion. A lot of these saisons are very refined to me. I have some perspective on this. I Not too long ago, I read a blog post by Lars Marius Garschel, who uh, beer people out there will know is this Norwegian IT guy who's really investigated Norwegian and Scandinavian more generally, uh, farmhouse brewing. And the question was, what is a farmhouse beer? And so what his perspective is, is a farmhouse beer is a beer that is made in the tradition that Farms used to make beer for themselves and also the people who worked there. The farmers would often, in the historical times, would use their own grains, and they would often malt their own grains. So they're not buying the malts. They would use a yeast. I think this is the key point. So the thing about the yeast is they're going to use a yeast. They're going to use it year after year. They're going to share it with their neighbors. Share it with the neighbors is a thing that I've totally seen in the historical context. I may not have it today, but uh, my neighbor down the road just brewed. I'm going to go get my cup of yeast from him. That's a thing I've experienced, like even in rural central Africa, where like you ask them, where's the yeast? They say, well, there's no yeast. You know, Um, I don't know what you're talking about. And then 
Instead, in translation, you ask, well, when do you add the life? That's what I did. That's how I tried to figure right. I said, when okay. do you add the life? Because she, when I asked yeast, she said, no yeast. Because yeasty is a thing they, they associate with the bread yeast they buy at the market. And that's not the case with this, yeasty in Swahili. So when do you add the life? Oh, the life. Well, the, the granny goes to her kitchen and comes back with a cup full of dregs from the previous yeah. beer or the cup full of dregs from her neighbor's previous beer. That's the life. So the fact that you say the neighbor, I just think, is, is true to the, the story you're telling right now. And, and let's dig down into this a little bit further because one of the things that is a commonality between Cezanne and the yeast that the Norwegians use is kvaik, and a lot of people will know about kvaik, but the commonality is those things can ferment at crazy high temperatures compared to... Uh, you know, commercial yeast compared to Chico yeast or compared to lager yeast or compared to, you know, uh, London ale They're not finicky Ale3. purebreds mm-hmm. used in commercial brewing, right? And this is probably a natural selection because the farmers, they didn't have immersion wort chillers, right? They could not cool the wort down. And so they would pitch at high temperatures. They oftentimes might have to ferment at temperatures that modern brewers would not want to use. And the yeast that they got adapted to this. And so I think that is the common thread. When you talk about Cezanne, it's not really made, as far as I know, by farmers in Belgium, in Valonia anymore. That has died. But that yeast is like the Kvike yeast. I mean, it has this kind of like, it's a very hardy yeast that can tolerate conditions that don't exist in modern industrial commercial breweries. And, and so I think in some ways that, that, that is what makes it uh, a farmhouse beer. It lacks those finicky cosmopolitan characteristics <laughs> that all of these really highly sourced and bred yeasts that we might buy out of a catalog somewhere have, right? So there's, there's, there's a rawness, there's a ranginess uh, to the character of it. So this beer we're drinking right now has a, a lot of really interesting and applicable characteristics. And you guys have described the place in which this beer was brewed. And it doesn't have anything to do with the context of the place in which the style was formed. That doesn't mean it can't bring us um, some truth about the style and some enjoyment about the details of that style when we're drinking it. And I don't I think this beer is lovely. I, I've never had a beer from this brewery before, and they're doing some really valuable things, in my opinion. Sugar. Jackio's Pockets of Sunlight Mixed Fermentation Saison Ale Brewed with Honey. I love this beer. Coriander and Lemon Verbena. This is one of my favorite Ohio brewed beers. Yeah, it's beautiful. They're a great brewery. This is a great label. And the concept of this beer is spectacular. So let's see what's in the glass. I put this beer in the podcast in this order because now we've got all the elements going on. We've got the Saison yeast. We have got the bread. We've also got souring bacteria here. And we've got spices. I'm not going to pretend that the farmhouse brewers of Valonia were making something this delicious 200 years ago. Maybe a few were, but probably not. 
But this is tapping on all of the traditions of the old farmhouse brewing technique. Yeah, and hey, if you happen to live just north of Athens in Ohio, (laughs) it's not bad that it's easy to get here. Oh, yeah. This is a sophisticated iteration of the qualities that might have been expressed in the original beers. Man, you really get that aroma of honey, coriander, the lemon verbena. You get some uh, little biscuity character from the malts. In the nose, you're talking about You've here. got the tartness. All of, all of that in the nose. Yeah, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. What about the process of brewing the spirit? So you're saying the souring happens in stainless steel. That's right. So they do the primary fermentation with the Saison yeast like normal. And then it goes into a stainless steel fermenter and they add the mixed culture, which is going to contain for sure lactobacillus. I'm sure it's got Britannomyces, probably Pediococcus, probably the whole range of things in the proportion that works well for them. And Jack Yo's has been making these mixed fermentation beers for a long time, so they've got it definitely dialed in. I think it stays in that uh, fermenter for six months. Then they put it into a bottle, and then there's the re-fermentation in the bottle. That's lovely. I mean, the acidity is firm, yet uh, still very enjoyable and refreshing. The dryness really brings out the spiciness, which I think is very nice in this and in what I would describe as kind of a medium light body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's got a spritziness. It's nice. It's refreshing. It's what a Saison should be. I mean, it's bottle conditioned. It has the effervescence. I, I mean, I think the spicy phenolic character is not as pronounced here as it is in, let's say, a DuPont or even in the Rock Mill beer. Yeah, I think it airs on the fruit side of that fermentation, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there is a little, there's a peppery back end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So far, this is the third Ohio beer we've had on this uh, show, and they are all excellent examples of what you can do with, uh, you know, with Saisons. Starting with the very classic interpretation that Rock Mill does, going with the, you know, the Brett, as Branch and Bone does, and now, you know, throwing all the tools at it, Brett, bacteria, uh, spices, as Jackie O's does. And, you know, I don't know. Do you have a favorite amongst the ones we've had today, Hans? I'm hesitant to to compare them. I, I enjoy all of them. If I had to stick to one, you know, Cezanne DuPont just has such a finessed melded quality of all the things that go into it. It's just spectacular. It's just so refined for a style that comes from a rustic tradition. You know, I understand that there's, you know, some contradiction there, but man, it's just so good. And the Rock Mill, I think they've dialed it in. These others, you know, with the sour and the complexity are interesting to me. And enjoyable, and I would love one when someone puts one in my hand. But if I'm just looking to love to drink a beer, the the DuPont and the Rock Mill, I think, are spot on. I would put forward the argument that these mixed fermentation saisons are in some ways the pinnacle of what the American brewing tradition has uh, done. Ooh, I want to hear more on this. Well, I mean... I think these are lovely, elegant beers. They're just beautiful. And and really, those came to be in the U.S., right? So this is not 
what Cezanne Dupont makes. Now, I, I have read, and I shared with you guys uh, something that came my way uh, via email about what has happened in recent years is actually now in Belgium, there start to be these mixed Cezanne Lambic beers, which just sound freaking delicious, right? But that didn't come about because the Belgians decided to do that. That came about because they're like, oh, look what the Americans are doing with these mixed fermentation beers. And we can do that too. And of course, I'm sure they're doing it beautifully. I'd love to try some of those. That is the sound of a fine homebrew opening. We have Hans and Chris Mercerhills under the oaks for the homebrew oh, round. Oh, excellent. Oh, I love that you have that. I thought you might. This is a bit Let's of a surprise. talk you know? about Cezanne and homebrew. That's right. So this is one that you and actually our good friend Chris specifically brewed together under the oaks, am I right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about this one? Pat is a maniac homebrewer, and as such, we decided to brew two five-gallon batches of homebrew on the same day at the same time, one of which was to feature Chris Mercer Hill's homegrown lemongrass that he had in his garden. And so we wanted to do a lemongrass saison. What is the difference between lemongrass and lemon verbena, which we had in the last beer? Sure. So lemon verbena is a kind of woody little herb that has uh, small lobe-shaped leaves. And the leaves, if you crush them, have a slightly lemony quality. Lemongrass is really a kind of a tall grass, um, not woody at all, that is used quite a bit in Thai cooking. And both of the plants give off oils that are reminiscent of lemon, obviously, I would think. Right? They, they absolutely do. Different, but similar. That's right. So Chris had grown this in his backyard, and he said, can we use this? And I said, I can totally make a recipe, and we can make a saison, and lemon is a great flavor to try to work in there. And he brought uh, some that he had grown, and we did a straight-up, Cezanne uh, with a very basic malt bill of, of Pilsner malt and a very straightforward Cezanne uh, yeast. And we brewed it outside at Pat's house under the trees, which happened to be oak trees. So we called this beer Under the Oaks. And it's light and kind of delicious and a lovely summer beer. And I'm surprised and delighted that Mark had a bottle and opened it. Yeah, secret stash. So how long ago did this actually get brewed? What would you say the month was last year? Was this last August, September? I would say early October. Okay, okay. Late September, early October. So this beer is probably about 10 months old. Fair enough. And it is tasting delicious. Man, it really is. This is a great beer. So, Hans, you followed the standard playbook in a lot of ways. The malt bill, is it all Pilsner here? It was straight up Pilsner malt with an addition of some unmalted wheat. 
touching back to the notion of a farmhouse ale and some unmelted grain that brings some character to it. I really like adding some unmelted grain. Uh, it has to do with the appearance of the finished beer, um, both in clarity, but also contributes, I believe, uh, to the head retention. Oh, I agree completely. I mean, and it's got fantastic head retention. And I think a Cezanne should be uh, somewhat hazy. I mean, I think that's the expectation. Yeah, I think this particular beer, the phenols are present a bit uh, on, you know, on the understated side. I get a lot of kind of orange peel type of character in the nose. Like it's got a very nice, almost bright citrus character for something that's been in the bottle in excess of 10 months. And the only ingredient um, that might contribute to that in the process is actually the lemongrass for this beer. Very nice pear-like nose, too, as it opens up. That's a really good... Esters come out. Really good observation, I think. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good. We talked a little bit about the malts, pale malts, maybe a little bit of uh, wheat or unmalted grains in there, hops. That was not a, a crucial part of this recipe. So really, a lot of it does come down to the choice of yeast, and the way you do the fermentation, and then, of course, the bottle conditioning and the aging. But what are the options for yeast? I do have a very clear personal preference on the French Saison yeast from Y Yeast. The JPSS, is that what I called it? The uh, Jewish Pre Saison series. So the, the uh, two beers that I brewed were both on the French Saison yeast, which would have been about the home brewing scale inside of a commercial brewery. And in the summer, it gets extremely hot in that pub. Oh, I imagine, As yeah. you know, especially before we had the windows replaced. And I just let it rip naturally. And I really like the results of those. I like the, the pepper character and also the fruit character from the hot fermentation. I didn't find those beers to be alcoholic and fusel alcohols. Though one of them was pretty high in alcohol. In excess of 10%. Don't be afraid to ferment hot. Would you say, Hans, is that that's pretty much the take I would say is don't be afraid to exploit the yeast and everything that it can contribute to the beer. Some yeasts really unravel um, when you push them into temperature extremes. They contribute things that you really don't want in that specific style of beer. In any beer, sometimes. Right. Fusel alcohol. Right. Yeah. So Belgian yeasts, however, can be pushed and can be pushed to a temperature that really starts producing things very idiosyncratic to the region and the yeasts from that region. I've tweaked this, you know... 70 degrees up to 85 and higher um, during the fermentation. Even pushing it to the very heights of the fermentation, the only negative effect I've found is you get some harsher alcohols that then require some more time to age before they relax and still make uh, lovely beers. So... This specific yeast, the yeasts, uh, the Saison yeasts, you really can push. I don't know if I would agree with you in saying Belgian yeast as a blanket term. 
in the sense that I think the Trappist yeasts, for the most part, are not fermented hot. Uh, you know, Orval is fermented in the 60s. Vesmal also fermented in the 60s. There are exceptions, uh, but, I, but I do think that the Saison yeast is in some ways a, a different beast than, let's say, the Trappist yeast. Maybe the interesting and important detail here is to not connect the Cezanne yeast to other Belgian yeasts, but to connect it to farmhouse ales. I agree. So what we've learned here is these farmhouse ales, whether they're the Scanwegian farmhouse ales, or even there's a tradition of Polish farmhouse Mm -hmm. ales. So maybe what we've learned is that these farmhouse ales really are flexible and operate in a wider temperature range by definition that is beneficial to people who are brewing in not a controlled environment or a brewery, but rather in a rustic rural farmhouse setting. Well, I have to say, gentlemen, we have had a pretty good night. We had a lot of amazing beers, but maybe, you know, maybe it's time to wrap it up. Hans, thanks for coming on the show again. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. And thanks for brewing this amazing beer, Hans. Dang, thanks for bringing it. Enjoyed it as a nightcap. And wow, like lovely. As if the DuPont steering wolf wasn't hard enough to come by. The under the oaks is, uh, yeah, that's the last bottle in the world. It's even harder to come by at this point, Yeah. yeah. All right, well, good night. Enjoy yourself out there in podcast land. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Peace out.